Well, I don't remember his name, but I do remember him being wheeled into the recess bay on a trolley. It was 1998. I was on a student placement in accident emergency. And the guy in the trolley had been blue lighted after his girlfriend had found him with a belt around his bicep and a needle hanging from his arm. She was distraught and he was clearly unresponsive. Now we did everything we could to rouse him. We used verbal stimuli, uh, words like, uh, hello, can you hear me, using his name. We used physical stimuli like uh, taking his hand, gentle squeeze, uh, taking his shoulders, a gentle shake. And when none of that worked, we used pain stimuli. Uh, one of the doctors, I remember, uh, twisted the man's earlobe and another doctor across the trolley um, took his pen out of his pocket and placed it across the nail bed of the man's hand and squeezed down with really what would have been cruel force if the man was awake. But all in the attempt to rouse him. I'd seen that method before, of course, as uh, students, we'd actually tried it out on each other. It is really sore, so much so that if an unresponsive person isn't actually roused by a pain stimulus like that, you know that there's something seriously wrong. Now I start with that illustration because Revelation 9 describes how God uses pain as a stimulus to rouse people who are, because of their sin, essentially comatose to him. And two things are astonishing about that. One, that God at times allows demons to be the pens that press hard on the nail bed of unbelievers so intoxicated with sin and idols that they are unresponsive to him and his call for faith. God wants us to be aware of that and I'll explain why in just a second. The second reason, the second thing that's astonishing is just how stubbornly unresponsive Human beings can be, unbelievers can be, even in some of the most excruciating circumstances, designed to wake them up to their need to repent. They seem unrousable. Now we pick up in chapter 9 uh, in our Revelation series, and so far, even in this middle section in the book, of uh, we've had four of seven trumpets that have been sounded. And of course, as Colin explained to us superbly well a couple of weeks ago, these trumpets are not used to make music. They're used to send signals. Signals to angels to send down these many judgments of God, partial judgments from him that, uh, that communicate what he thinks about what's going on in the earth and as a prefiguring of the judgment to come. Now, there is admittedly an awful lot of strange stuff in here. So how are we going to understand it? Well, before we dive into it, let me just give you a simple principle that I'd love for us to start applying or apply anyway. Um, primarily, avoid looking out for things in our world or in the news that match the symbols that we see in here. Uh, people have done that and drawn some pretty imaginative conclusions about what they're seeing and what these symbols represent. Like the locusts of chapter 9, well, they must be Apache helicopters. Well, no, don't read Revelation and look out or look to the news to see what these symbols might represent. Read it and then look back 
to the Old Testament. That's the key principle for understanding this book. Look back to the Old Testament. Follow the echoes. Find out what happens where you see those things echoed and uh, you'll learn what God wants you to learn. That's the essential principle. For example, these uh, trumpets. These trumpets very closely um, sound like the plagues. They're they actually described as plagues in Revelation 9. They very closely follow the pattern of the plagues that we see in Egypt, in the Exodus, where, for example, God's activity is prompted by the cries or the prayers of his people, just like it is here in chapter 8, verse 3, where the land and living things, not human things, living things, are um, plagued. Where then their own bodies are plagued with pain and then later families stricken with grief and where hard-hearted and unrepentant sinners are finally judged and astonishingly like Pharaoh, there's no remorse, no repentance and no acknowledgement that the Lord is God. You see how it fits? It's a pattern really. That is in essence what's going on in this passage. So let's do some digging. I've got two main points. The first one is considerably longer than the first one, so bear with me. But first of all, verses 1 to 19, we see in these two trumpets, these two woes, if you like, the painful judgment of a just and a gracious God. Uh, these, this passage tells us how God uses the pain stimuli of suffering and death to wake people up to his existence and his salvation and also as a means of demonstrating his judgment. Suffering is what the fifth trumpet signals. Now demons are released to cause people pain. Yes, demons. And yes, they do exist. The Bible says there is a dimension to reality that we can't see, a spiritual realm, if you like, where good and bad angels wield their very direct and powerful influence on our experience. Uh, good angels do God's bidding. They are, as Hebrews 1 says, ministering spirits. But bad ones, called demons, are malevolent spirits, warring against God and all that he's trying to accomplish. It's the reality of their existence that makes Paul say to us in Ephesians chapter 6 that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. Now that's exactly what we see going on here. They are demons, they are real. Now, what we find in this passage is that these demons are released, but how are they released? Well, if you look with me at chapter 9, verse 1, the star or angel of verse 1 is given the key to the shaft of the abyss. Now, the abyss is effectively jail for demons, right? And what does he do? Verse 2, he opens it. Smoke bellows out and locusts swarm in the darkened sky and then descend to the earth to do damage. That's what's going on. Now, when it says locusts, don't think literal grasshoppers, uh, especially based on the description of verses 7 to 10. They don't have like weird hair, huge teeth and fancy armour. No, the descriptions of these demons in verses 3 and in verses 7 to 10 are symbolic. And again, like I've just said, best understood by looking back to the Old Testament. Now, locusts in the Old Testament 
are agents of God's judgment on idolatrous and immoral people. Um, like in Exodus 10 or in Joel chapter 1 and 2. Look them up, those passages, and uh, see what they represent. You'll understand this passage even better. But they are, these demons, released. What are they then released to do? To do harm. But not like normal locusts do. Not to vegetation, but to particular people. Particular people. Verse 4. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Now, the seal of God is most likely a reference to the Holy Spirit. Okay, he is God's seal. With that seal, we are then under God's protection, which is great news for believers, especially when you read ahead and see what comes with these uh, this demonic assault. Um, however, there is no comfort without Christ. There's no protection outside of him. Uh, uh, what do we see described? Well, it's horrendous, isn't it? It's torture, torment and agony are the words that are used to describe what's going on here. And based on the way the word uh, torment, well, I guess you can ask, is this, a, is this, what kind of pain is this? What kind of torment and agony uh, is in view here? Is it physical pain? Well, I, it, it doesn't say necessarily, but it certainly could be. But based on the way the word torment is used elsewhere in Revelation for um, for afflictions of the mind, like you see that in chapter 11, verse 10, and again a few times in chapter 18, you can say with greater certainty that Psychological pain is one of the things that these demons bring, if not the main thing. Now, I don't think that should be any surprise to us. Demonic activity in the New Testament is most commonly associated, actually, with the mind, where the mind is the battleground for this uh, war between truth and lie. Uh, sure, in the Gospels, we see demons... Um, possessing some people in a sorry state and they often try to throw them into fire or water in order to cause physical harm for them. But the infiltration and deception of the mind seems to come first. Uh, despair before death or at least the longing for it. But look at what it says in verse 6. It says, uh, During those days, people will seek death but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. Now, what causes, what causes such pain and suffering in the minds of unbelievers? What do you think? A guilty conscience, perhaps, that finds no forgiveness? An addictive habit that can't be broken? Or the elusiveness of true fulfilment? Uh, the irretrievable loss of something that did fulfill? Uh, the torture of loneliness that's lasted a lifetime? Or the child you love but hates you? The list is endless. The range of things that affect our mind and lead us to not just low mood, but depressive times that lead to the kind of 
mental pain that robs us of joy and sends us to despair? Well, the pain that people feel is likened in this text to be even more, is, I, I suppose, described in this text to be even more intense than those things I've just described. Uh, I mean, the pain that people feel is likened in this passage to the sting of a scorpion. Now, a scorpion sting isn't like a bee sting. You know, a bee sting hurts around the area, stung. But a scorpion sting floods the entire nervous system with poison and your whole, your whole body, your, your whole, uh, all of your pain receptors go into overdrive. It's so excruciating for some that all of one's inbuilt capacity to self-protect just goes. They'd prefer death rather than that pain. And yet, even as verse 6 says, even that apparent relief will elude them. Now, whenever we talk about issues like this, we need to pay extremely close attention to what the passage actually says. Now, some of you, brothers and sisters in Christ, some of us, we suffer emotional and psychological pain. And uh, we may be tempted upon hearing this to find ways to doubt our salvation or to feel like we are under some kind of demonic attack. But I don't want us to read this passage and think, I'm tormented by these things, therefore I must be possessed. Or I'm suffering psychologically, perhaps that means I'm not a Christian because it, people who are Christians don't suffer this because they're marked by the seal of the Holy Spirit. Well, that's not what we're seeing. This is definitely not what this passage teaches. What it's teaching, be, listen, to be clear, it's teaching that sometimes some people, unbelievers that is, will experience painful things because demons bent on ruining God and his world are at work. Okay? There are other causes of emotional and psychological pain that are not demonic. Okay? Just to be clear. Uh, so don't, please don't draw illogical conclusions from a passage that doesn't allow it. You are in Christ and therefore protected from this. However, what we do see is that demons are released to cause people, unbelievers, pain. But that's not all we see. We see that demons are free, but under God's control. What evidence of God's control could you spot in that section in verses 1 to 12? Um, it'd be great if you could scan through it and have a look with me. Uh, I suppose you could say verse 1, the, the angel who gets the key to the abyss, where did he get that, that from? Well, from the one who's in total control of absolutely everything in the entire book of Revelation, God himself. Verse 3, talking about this power that these kind of demon locusts have to, to, uh, to afflict people and torment people. Who is it that gives them this power? Actually, it's God. He's the one who sets the limit on who they could touch, how far they could go, and for how long. Now, the parameters, therefore, are set, just like the limits God set Satan in Job's situation. You read about that in chapters one and two of the book of Job. God remains in control, even in 
judgment plagues like this. And it's surprising, isn't it? I mean, that, that God would use demons as agents of his judgment, who even through their afflictions will make the stated fact of Romans chapter 1 of God's wrath being poured out against all uh, wickedness and unrighteousness of men their very experience. It's astonishing. But why does he do it? Why does he use this method as part of his overall plan to make himself and his wrath and his grace known? Is it because he's somehow malevolent himself? Well, no, of course not. It's because he is just. And this, these many judgments and this ongoing wrath outpoured, um, it's, it's just what a sinful, idolatrous and immoral, God-forsaking people actually deserve. It's what we'd all deserve were it not for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ in rescuing us and making the salvation known to us. In addition, he does it this way still because he's good. And by this pain, some people will actually be roused. They will wake up in time to receive God's salvation and prove him, despite their sin and idolatry and immorality, to be as good and gracious as his word tells us to be. Well, that's the fifth trumpet. Suffering is what the fifth trumpet signals, but death is what this uh, sixth trumpet signals. And we see this in verses 13 to 19. Um, again, we see demons are released to cause, this time, death. Verse 14, there are... Uh, four of these demons, uh, four of them bound at the great river Euphrates. Now four might not sound like many, but uh, four in the book of Revelation is is not a literal number. It's often the number of completeness, like the four corners of the earth, in other words, the whole earth. Four winds, in other words, from everywhere. Same here. Four angels uh, is four demons. Um, the perfect number of demons basically to notch up the kind of death count on earth that in this plague would make our COVID numbers look insignificant. And verse 16 tells us the actual numbers of those involved. It tells us the size of this army and it's vast. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands. 200,000 or um, 200 million or something like that. Now, the fact that these uh, demons are bound at the Euphrates is the kind of news that the original readers, it, that it would make them kind of look at each other with an ominous look. And here's why. Because beyond the Euphrates, in Old Testament times and actually in the ancient Near East, that's where the most barbaric armies came from. If they invaded, you were in trouble. You're in the deepest trouble. Anything that invades from there is as horrific in the process of killing as they were in the administering of death. It was dreadful. Uh, now, th so this is ominous. This is an ominous sign of judgment for the world. Now, what kind of army of demons are, what is this army of demons released to do? Verse 15 tells us so plainly, to kill a third of humanity. 
And again, it's not an actual count, but really just a way of communicating that this is a partial judgment. This is not the end time judgment. This is not complete. And we know it's judgment because of the descriptions of the fire and the smoke and the sulfur that is coming from the mouths of these creatures. That description, of course, is an echo of two places in the Bible. One, Sodom and Gomorrah, destroyed by fire and sulfur for sinning greatly. And secondly, hell, the final resting place, resting place, the final place of the condemned. Now the prevalent, uh, I guess, how will this demon army do their killing? It's a question that's asked here. Again, is it physical? It's hard to tell from the text. Will they actually take lives? It doesn't say that, although it can be. But the prevalence of the word mouth is the thing that's very noticeable in this section. It's repeated three times. And again, it suggests false teaching as the method by which people will be killed. It's not that their words will slay them necessarily. It's just that um, their words will convince people so much of their idolatry and their immorality and that they have no need for God that they will cement themselves into their lostness all the way to death. So don't you don't necessarily need to consider demons doing some kind of horror movie slaughtering. It's probably more likely that through their mouths they will deceive people to death. And I guess that's why you've got this description of the tails of the horses on which these troops are mounted as serpents. Serpents. Who does that remind you of? Well, Satan, of course. Satan. Satan is the one who is a serpent who, even as we look back to Genesis 3, deceives Adam and Eve with his tongue. Now, these are the deceptive teachings or philosophies or worldviews that are as lethal as any little snake bite or any massive barbaric army. If they convince a person to be an unbeliever all the way to death, that's fatal. Now, demons are freed here, again released in order to carry out this work, but again, like we were, like they were in the fifth trumpet, when the fifth trumpet sounded, they are still under God's control. And what evidence of God's control can we see in verses 13 to 19? Well, there you go in verse 13 again, the voice that decrees their release comes from before God's throne. Previous chapters in Revelation tell us that Jesus occupies that place, or else it could be in proximity to him, one of the key angels that do God's bidding. The voice, of course, that John refers to uh, when John hears a voice, most commonly it is Christ's voice that he hears. Um, so all it's it's impossible to be absolutely certain, but it sounds like it is. Uh, Christ is the one who is in charge. In verse fifteen, then you've also got uh, this this uh, who is the one who's essentially readied these four angels. There's some very specific timestamp here, you know, ready for this very specific hour, day, month, and year. Well. Only God has it within himself to sovereignly plan to that extent. God, essentially, even with the sixth judgment, the sixth trumpet leaves nothing to chance. Now, 
This passage is absolutely astonishing in many ways. I've spent all week wrestling with it. That God, in his sovereignty, employs demons as the pens that press hard on the nail bed of unbelievers. It's an incredible thought. That the pain that some people experience in suffering and death, they're actually intended to demonstrate God's just wrath and judgment against sin. But also to signal to others to wake up before it's too late. Now, God's methods are, of course, sometimes surprising, but actually, perhaps that's not even the most surprising thing that's in this passage. What is truly astonishing is the hardness of the human heart. And this is point two. The hardness of the human heart in verses 20 to 21. Now, many people are fundamentally unresponsive to the pain that comes through suffering and death. It's incredible. They're like the guy on the trolley in recess. You know, we did on that day everything that we could. We shouted, shook, uh, we used the pen, uh, we gave him drugs, we pounded on his chest, we shocked, shocked again, shocked again, but nothing. The only thing that was left to do on that occasion was call time of death. Now, what happened to him physically is, I guess, the experience of thousands upon thousands of people spiritually. Who, people who find joy in a lesser pleasure, whether it's drugs or relationships or money or self or whatever. Whatever is not God, that's a lesser thing. That's an idol. And if people find their pleasure in those things other than God, well, that is exactly why we see what we see in verses 28 and 21. This is exactly where humanity's problems lie. That the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze and wood idols that cannot hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality or their thefts. Each one is on the spiritual trolley, dead in transgressions and sins because they've worshipped something of their own creation, not God who is the creator. Well, why are we being told all this? Think about it. What how does this revelation of Jesus Christ help his church to endure? What pastoral purpose does Jesus have in mind for telling us about these trumpets? From chapters 8 and 9, these catastrophes on creation and on humanity. Well, there are a few. Firstly, it warns us against idolatry and immorality and their ends. I mean, the acts of the flesh are obvious. We read in Galatians, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, 
drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So what does it do? When you see God's judgment on the idolatry and immorality of a lost world of unbelievers, it helps us to take sin seriously. It's not something to be toyed with. It's something itself to be killed. And that's what God, by his spirit, enables us to do by putting his spirit in us, convicting us of sin, showing us the gospel, reminding us of the truth of it and doing it in community with a church family. But secondly, its purpose is to help us remember to put on the armour of God so that we can take our stand against the devil's schemes. To pray as Jesus taught us to pray, deliver us from evil. Or to sharpen and wield the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, by reading, reading, reading what he's given us. And hearing, hearing, hearing it preached. Thirdly, it gives us a clear understanding of God's just judgment against sin. He's not some gentle janitor in the sky who's just going to sweep sin under the carpet. He takes it seriously and he wants us to do that too. Fourthly, it serves us, this passage, with a clear understanding of human nature. This passage helps us see why some people just do not repent and why we should not lose heart in our evangelism. And fifthly, and finally, to sound it as a warning to those who should repent. We can use this passage to do just that. Use it to help people see how seriously God hates sin. How far he will go to help people see that they need to wake up in time to receive his salvation. And to help them see just how hard the human heart can get. Help them see why we're concerned about the lack about their lack of concern over the environmental catastrophes and society dissolving immorality where evil acts can be declared as good or over a world order so seemingly fragile that it's but it's brought to its knees by a microscopic virus help them see just how obvious it should be to them and to the world that there's something terribly wrong with it with us and tell them about Jesus who said the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And help them to see that that's possible. Because God who is just to judge is also merciful to save. In his kindness, God grants the very thing he demands of us. Repentance. A repentance that Acts 11 says leads to life, not death and destruction. And that leads to a heart that's made new so that it loves not God replacements, but God himself. Only through Christ and his death and resurrection can we truly be saved. Let's sing together. Before the throne of God above, we have a strong, strong and perfect plea. And when Satan tempts us to despair, the people of God, and tells me of the guilt within, if he tries his wiles on us, upward I look and see him there, who made an end of all my sin.